Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let the Meat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. A couple months ago, I gave a communion talk in Boonville at Riverside Christian Church. It was the first part of a four-part series on communion deconstructed to resemble the elements of a recipe. Ingredients, directions, time, and the result. Today is kind of sort of live. Like it's a live reenactment of what I did a couple months ago. And this is going to be the first time I've recorded the talk. The content falls pretty neatly into our parameter of real food, so I thought it was worth passing along to you lunatics. Bread and wine were real food back in Jesus' day, and their ingredients illustrate both the impermanence and permanence of his body and blood. After I give you some background, we'll look at the ingredients of first century bread and wine. It's pretty interesting. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, my hope is that you are encouraged and enlightened as you take future communions. To anyone who does not profess a saving relationship with Christ, my hope is that you are drawn nearer to him. When I lived outside of St. Louis, I went to what can be described as a pretty hipster church. It was right next to a college campus, and I don't think anyone in the early years was over 35 years old. Wednesday night services were usually followed by volleyball or ultimate frisbee until midnight. It was a pretty bizarre church to fellowship with, especially when you hear all the time about young people who are leaving the church in droves. I think it goes to show that young people stick around if leaders stick to biblical convictions. We can see through fake Christianity. The church building was a former jail, and you could see spots in the concrete floor where the bars used to meet the floor. I always thought jail was the perfect place for church. So many of us walked in there assuming we were free, but in reality, were imprisoned by sin. The pastor was this guy named Mark. He was in his late 30s, and Mark had this electric personality. He didn't have much hair left, but what he did have, he slicked back with gel into spikes every time we met together. Mark didn't sleep much. He said he could only get a couple hours a night, and he always seemed totally amped up about absolutely everything. He said something one time at a weekly worship service at my high school. Yes, I went to a Christian high school, so that kind of thing was allowed. He was using the practice of communion to illustrate a greater point in his sermon. Side note, if you don't know a lot about Christianity or haven't spent a lot of time with a church, 
Communion is where Jesus' followers all over the world drink wine and eat bread to reenact the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood for our sins. Mark said something like this, Dude, bread and wine were used for communion way back in Jesus' day because they were common food items present in most people's houses in the first century. If Jesus instituted communion today, he'd probably use pizza and soda. While I forget the overarching point he was trying to make, this has always stuck in my mind. And I must say, I disagree. I believe that if Jesus instituted communion today in 2019, he'd still use bread and wine. I think that Jesus chose bread and wine not just due to their widespread use in the first century, but because they communicated something foundational about his body and blood in ways that pizza and soda could never do. In Mark 14 and other parallel passages, Jesus institutes the practice of communion. He passes around the bread saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So there's Jesus saying that bread represents his body and wine represents his blood. Why is that? Let's talk about the bread first. Modern grocery store bread has ingredients like high fructose corn syrup and dough conditioners to prolong shelf life. It can last for longer than a week before going moldy. But bread in the first century Jerusalem was different. It was baked on the side of a circular fire pit and only had real ingredients. The entire list of ingredients was flour, water, yeast, honey, and salt. That's it. If you didn't eat it quickly, it would grow moldy after only a couple of days. Bread was one of the most quickly spoiling foods available to the Hebrew people in the first century. It was synonymous with the concept of impermanence. Now, look at your average soda ingredient list, and you'll see things like aspartame and sodium benzate. This sounds so obvious, it hurts me to say it, but soda is engineered to have the maximum shelf life possible. Those ingredients may not be healthy for you, but they sure last a while. This is the exciting part, talking about ancient wine. And I'm sorry to any millennial Christian listening to this, but the wine we have today is nothing like the wine Jesus drank. Back then, wine was a sanitizing agent mainly used to purify water. To say most wine was nasty would be the understatement of the year. Fermentation was not entirely understood yet, and wine was sometimes boiled in the open air to speed up the process. When this happened, wine took on the consistency of tree sap. Pliny the Younger said that wine should be cut with seawater far away from shore. Homer suggested 20 parts of water for every part of wine. Other Greek authors suggested three or four parts water to wine. In Proverbs, the author says of one particular vintage, it goes down smoothly, but in the end, bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. If you listened to my episode on the danger of labels, you might remember that a grape has all the ingredients needed to make wine. Once broken, the wild yeast on the outside of the skin starts converting the sugar into alcohol. And as you might guess, grapes were the only ingredient in first century wine. 
Wine was one of the most slowly spoiling foods available to the Hebrew people in the first century. It was synonymous with the concept of permanence. When other foods would spoil, wine wouldn't. It might be barely palatable, but it could still purify your drinking water. And here we arrive at the crux of communion. Why did Jesus choose bread and wine to represent his body and blood? I don't know for sure, but I think he wanted to communicate the concepts of impermanence and permanence. Like bread, his earthly body was impermanent. He was only with his disciples for a short time before he left them. And like wine, his blood is a sanitizing agent. We don't drink his blood for pleasure, but to reenact the cleansing power of his sacrifice on the cross. And though his body left us thousands of years ago, his blood remains as powerful now as then. It is in his blood that is the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. So, there you have it. Jesus might have used real food to communicate important concepts about his body and blood. If Jesus was using real food, shouldn't we? I know that's kind of like saying, if Jesus was using sandals all year, shouldn't we? But hear me out. We lose a connection to the past when we have a diet that's too modern and engineered. Or, at least I think so. Hey, lunatics. I just want to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening, downloading, reviewing, and giving me your feedback. Because of your passion, we've passed the thousand download mark with only five episodes under our belt. That's amazing. I have big plans for this podcast. And to do it, I realized I need to be publishing episodes more frequently. Duh, right? So, from now on, they'll be coming out every week. I have a list of new topics and amazing interviews as long as my arm, so it won't be hard to up the frequency. If you really enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about it. Tell your parents. Tell your boss. Tell anybody who cares even a little bit about what they eat. Or, if you're a little bit introverted, you can rate it and leave a review on iTunes. No conversation required. I'd be happy with either choice you make. If you have questions, email me at austin at letthemeatgrass.org. With your permission, I might include your question, along with my answer, at the end of the next episode. If you want to share any exciting news with me, that's another awesome reason to send an email. If you make the radical step of getting to know an ethical farmer near you as a result of listening to this podcast, I'd be overjoyed. In any state you're listening to this, there are farmers you can feel good about supporting. I promise. You can still use the offer code PDCST, like podcast without the vowels, on fedfromthefarm.com to get $10 off your first order of nutrient-dense pasture-raised food. Remember, I manage this farm, so I can personally endorse the quality. Most people who try it are surprised our meat doesn't taste gamey. That's our secret. We feed and finish our animals on grass. The taste is beyond compare. If you order from us and pick up your order at one of our buying clubs, I'll get to meet you. I want to hear your story. Seriously, I feel like we're part of a tsunami wave that is rapidly approaching the shore. The day of reckoning for a broken food system is long overdue, 
and both of us are part of that revolution. That's exciting stuff. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin, E-L-O-I-G-N, at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin. Backchecking was done by the daring David Boatwright. And sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Until next time, how Saudi.